Well, Welcome to Lab Life with the Air Force Research Laboratory. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Kenneth. Hello, folks. Today we are joined by Jen Cook to discuss what it's like to be an epidemiologist and the important topic of inclusivity of women in STEM. In three, two, one. So, Jen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, well, we need to clear something up right off the bat. So your Jen Cook, spelled G-E-N. So you're not a general. I am not. <laughs> okay. I can see how you could get that a lot, especially when you used to work in our commander's action group. So <laughs> Definitely. it's It's been uh, confusing. I don't think something my parents predicted when they named me. <laughs> Who knew? You'd someday you'd be end of the Air Force, so... <laughs> Yeah, we had some commenters. So we want to make sure we uh, you know, got rid of any rumors, so we appreciate that. Definitely. Well, cool. So right now, uh, you're an epidemiologist by training. You've been in our um, 7-Eleven Human Performance Wing or Materials and Manufacturing Directorate. But what I think is most interesting, me to kick off for our listeners, is that as a trained epidemiologist, we're in the middle of a pandemic right now. You know, We're all recording this from home. Uh, there's a really cool quilt hanging behind you. I know our, our listeners can't see what I can see, uh, <laughs> but not our normal lab space. What's it like to be an epidemiologist in the middle of a global pandemic? Yeah, it's a super exciting time. Um, so we're, we're watching science unfold in real time. And there's just so many questions we're trying to answer all at once. So, you know, everyone wants to know who's at risk. You know, how does this impact my asthma, for example? Um you know, what are the best treatment options? We've heard a lot in the media about various treatment options that may or may not work. You know, immunity, you know, once I get it, am I immune? You know, what does that mean for a vaccine? And then, you know, lately we've been hearing a lot more about these asymptomatic cases, you know, people who maybe are positive for the virus, but never show any symptoms. So, you know, it's exciting because there's so much going on, but at the same time, it's, it's challenging because it's like, you know, somebody's watching over your shoulder um, and, you know, scientists and others on the front line, sort of like somebody's checking your work as you're going. And then, you know, word travels fast because everybody wants to know what the latest and, you know, inevitably we're going to get stuff wrong because that's how science is. We try different things. And so it is, it can be hard to kind of undo that information that spreads uh, if it isn't quite right. Definitely. I think it, what struck me the most is, you know, kind of being a science communicator is the power of science communication during this time. And then uh, I think a phrase that really resonated with me was the only the, the only thing that replaces science is better science. And that's kind of where we're at. You know, we, we thought that certain things might be helpful or maybe they aren't helpful or maybe they're not as helpful as we thought, or maybe they're even better. Uh, an unusual time. Yeah, for sure. I mean, early on, a lot of the questions that people had for me, um, you know, I sort of knew the answers to because they were general questions about viruses and how long viruses live on surfaces. And while we didn't know for sure with this virus, we had a lot of good evidence and data from, you know, other coronaviruses and, and previous uh, respiratory diseases. But now um, my standard answer when people ask me questions is usually we don't know, but we are learning more every day. And um, that's what makes it so exciting. So are you still in communication with a lot of the uh, either your old team or people still working in epidemiology that you're kind of uh, working through this with, or at least getting their perspective uh, during COVID-19? Yeah, uh, that's 
kind of one fun thing for me personally, you guys know I've been in a more of a budgeting role um, in AFRL here recently. And so I'm not directly um, working on this pandemic, um, but obviously I have a lot of colleagues that I've worked with over the years that are, you know, right in the thick of this, trying to figure out testing, trying to, um, you know, treat patients just at the very basic level and, um, you know, working to figure out, um, you know, how is this virus being shed? How long is it shed? Um, looking at those antibody tests. So yeah, it's, it's, I'm kind of lucky because I kind of get to see the fun part without having the stress of being <laughs> in the thick of it right now. But you were kind of in the thick of the H1N1 um, issue we had uh, 10 or so years ago, weren't you? Yeah, um, it was uh, 2009. We had a emerging um, flu virus that came out. And um, I know you guys talked uh, with the, the flu team on a previous podcast about um, how, you know, we detect those viruses and how we track them around the world. And so I think, um, you know, one of the parallels I'm seeing is um, there was just a lot of uncertainty then um, at the beginning, just like there is now. Um, and in that case, you know, we were just really fortunate that um, it wasn't as severe uh, of a virus as, you know, we're seeing now with uh, COVID-19. So what was your role during during the H1N1 outbreak? Yeah, so um, one of my areas of expertise is biostatistics and, you know, working with data. And so um, the respiratory disease surveillance system that we have it's pretty robust. Um, so not only are, do we have people out in the field um, taking specimens, sending them back to the laboratory to identify, you know, what types of viruses are in them, but then they um, actually can take those samples and sequence them to see um, if there are any changes in what we're seeing circulating. You know, flu is a great example because it changes a lot. And so um, tracking those changes and then um, we also collect uh, information on symptoms. So how, you know, if you come into the clinic and, you know, you have a cough or fever, sore throat and trying to record those. And so um, part of what I did was to try to, you know, get our arms around all of that data and try to put it in a form that made sense um, to our leaders so they could understand, you know, what they were dealing with. You mentioned that you're working with data. So how do you feel every time you open up uh, Facebook and Jeremy from the second grade is now a data scientist? <laughs> yeah, um, we have a lot of armchair epidemiologists right now. Um, you know, people are getting the data. I know here in Ohio, they post the data um, every day on the state's website. And so anybody has access to it and you can kind of track. And, you know, I think it's really fun and exciting um, that people are doing that. But same time, um, I have seen some cases where, you know, folks who really don't have the credentials um, to be doing this type of data analysis are posting, um, you know, productive models, for example, or other just general graphs. And um, it makes me nervous. I mean, as we talked about a few minutes ago, you know, word travels super fast right now. And so, if Jeremy from second grade is, uh, you know, now grown up and being an armchair epidemiologist and his uh, stuff's getting transmitted around the world, uh, it, it can be concerning. 
that's not to say there aren't um, a lot of folks out there who, you know, do know what they're doing and are posting really helpful information. I think that's one of the really big challenges right now for folks is sorting through, you know, what do I believe? What do I trust? Um, what's a good source? Well, it's not memes because that's what I'm seeing from Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's reassuring. <laughs> yeah. I have to have a shout out to my, uh, AP stats teacher in high school, Mr. Petrello, because at least I'm trying, I'm trying to, you know, synthesize this and Dr. Coleman from, from college, but uh, we never knew we would need stats this much in our lives as, as, you know, non, you know, non-science majors. Definitely. Um, I think it's um, really brought awareness to um, the power of data and, how we can pull it together um, to look at the big picture, which I think is one of the really cool parts of epidemiology, as well as um, there's so many cool visualization tools out there now. I mean, just something as simple as maps, um, trying to track this virus, but then um, all the way to, you know, cell phone data um, to try to track uh, social contacts and where the virus might have spread. So really fun time to be um, not just looking at data, but also finding exciting ways to present the data uh, that makes sense. So how are you finding it best to engage with people like Jeremy from second grade? Like if you do see something that may need like, hey, addressing, do you usually reach out yourself or try to pull them aside to say, hey, this may not be totally accurate? That's a great question. I mean, for me personally, um, you know, obviously it depends on how, how well I know Jeremy, hypothetical Jeremy. Um, if uh, it's someone I don't know very well, I may just not engage because I just don't have the uh, mental energy to uh, fight every misinformation out on social media. Um, but it is, if it is someone I know and, and have a good relationship with, then um, certainly would do what you suggested, uh, Ken, is, you know, pull them aside and um you know, have a, a conversation. Um, I'm not into public shaming <laughs> of people who, and I mean, truthfully, they're, they're trying to do the right thing and uh, they're not, they're not out there for malicious means. And it was, so how did you get to this point to be an epidemiologist? Were you a little kid, like the little kids out there right now watching, you had know, watched Dr. Amy Acton, you know, the state of Ohio's health director, you know, being inspired by this lab coat. This is what I'm going to, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to fight the virus was that what little jen was thinking you know i i'd like to say that i was you know that focused and driven from a young age but i definitely wasn't <laughs> um i don't know probably if you'd asked uh, me when i was a kid what i wanted to be when i grow up i would have said uh i don't know a butterfly or something so um definitely didn't grow up knowing i was going to be a scientist you know found my way kind of in high school to science and then really uh got deep into it in college. And what really brought me to epidemiology specifically was I was working in a laboratory at the bench level, um, studying proteins uh, that are secreted by specific T cells. So it was a really specific, really important work, but it was way too tiny for me. It was really hard for me to see how that fit into the bigger picture. And for me, that's really what epidemiology is. It's, it's the study of disease at this big population level. It's not you know, how you or, or me uh, or Ken experiences a particular disease. It's how all of us and all the people around us experience it. So that was just a much more palatable uh, field for me. 
you know, what I see a trend and what you've talked about and how I know you, it's the strategy and that's really, or the, the big picture. So that's, I guess, what epidemiology is, or you mentioned earlier that you're doing some strategic budgeting work, you know, you get to see the big, big picture and help plan, you know, for the future for our organization. Yeah, definitely. I think um, it's a really exciting field, epidemiology, because you get to just make such a big impact. Um, you know, these questions that people are asking about, um, you know, their specific uh, illnesses, that's what epidemiology does. We look and see what those risk factors are for various things. And we use the statistics to build a model that can help us um, determine our risk or predict it. Here statistics like, you know, people who smoke have this percent of chance of getting this type of cancer. I mean, that's epidemiology research uh, behind all of that, um, making it happen. And then being able to influence uh, individual lives by using that big picture data. So to help out um, us and our viewers, when it came to your actual teaching, like or schooling, how did a, does an epidemiologist get trained or prepared for, uh, let's say, the future pandemic? There's obviously a lot of historic precedent in other pandemics that have happened in our history, but uh, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say technically, um, I have a strong foundation uh, for pandemics, but I cannot say my school prepared me for the logistical challenges um, of us, you know, being at home and uh, just uh, living a whole new normal. So um, maybe something to add to future curriculum. I don't know. But uh, a big part of my work was on biostatistics and, and data analysis, as was mentioned. I learned how to write statistical code how to merge uh, those various data sets together that we talked about. The ability uh, during this pandemic to analyze the data, both to track the virus and understand uh, things about the virus has really been key. And I think if you have a foundation in basic data analysis, you can take any type of data and work with it to answer some of these questions. So would you encourage you know, other people to get into your field of work? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great time to become an epidemiologist. Public health jobs kind of ebb and flow uh, with the times. It's one of those jobs that it's really important and it's obvious that it's important uh, during a time like this. But in a couple of years when we're, you know, back to normal, whatever that looks like, you know, we, we start to think, oh, well, maybe we don't need so much public health anymore. And so I think now is a great time to get get on board because um, there's a lot of momentum around it. There's a lot of folks that see the value in it. And I think uh, for me, it's for my career, it's been really awesome because it's it's very foundational. I mean, we've talked a lot about respiratory viruses, but I mentioned, you know, you could study cancer. I've studied, um, you know, hearing loss, occupational exposures, things related to deployments, drugs. You know, I've did some work on some statin drugs and, you know, it's just, it's fun for me because I get to do a little bit of everything. Any advice for people looking to get on that career path? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing I would say is try it. I mean, uh, especially for young girls, you know, don't let anybody tell you that you can't do it. I have met so many um, young women who have said, oh, I'm not good at math or I'm, you know, boys in my family are good at math. Girls are not. And I, I found it's just not true. Um, don't tell yourself those lies. Um, sometimes we're our own worst enemies, you know, surround yourself with 
um, you know, teachers and extended family members that, you know, really encourage you to try new things. And, you know, STEM is not for everyone, but if you haven't tried it, don't tell yourself you can't do it until you give it a shot. So kind of going on that then, like, so the current state as of 2020, like, how do you feel about uh, women's represent- representation, excuse me, in STEM and kind of how that uh, needs to change going forward? Yeah, I mean, there's a ton of areas where we can collectively do better. I mean, I've been, um, you know, reading about this a lot. I've been wrapping up a study of uh, female scientists and engineers in AFRL. And, um, you know, when I say we, I I don't mean just AFRL. I mean, all of us um, in the United States, um, you know, we have some work to do. About half of college graduates in STEM are women, which is so awesome, But then when you look at those that are actually employed in STEM jobs, uh, the proportion of women that hold those jobs drops to about 28%. And so clearly there's a disconnect there, you know, those who want to study STEM versus those who actually work in STEM. The research shows that a lot of this is related to uh, workplace culture or the climate. Somewhat related to that is the need to balance, you know, our career with our family responsibilities. So I think, you know, some of the areas we could do better are on, um, you know, flexible work policies. I mean, we're living out an experiment right now on um, flexible work practices. So it'll be really exciting to see uh, what we do going forward. And and I'll just note, those are not specific to women. I mean, men have families too, right? So um, everyone benefits from uh, work practices that allow us to balance our work and family responsibilities. So kind of touched on the idea of diversity, but I know there's also inclusivity. What can, what has your research study told you about that? Yeah, I think um, one of the easy ways that we can um, sort of change the culture around this is to pay attention to the words that we use. Um, it might seem like a small thing, but I believe that it's a small thing that can make a big difference. So for example, some people hear the word mankind and, um, you know, to them it includes everyone, um, but others don't necessarily feel that way. A simple change is to use the word humanity and um, it's just a much more inclusive term and it's so easy to change. You know, why wouldn't we make that change? Um, But it does require us to be aware of those things. Um, Personally, in my own life, I'm trying to use the word spouse um, more often instead of, you know, a gender specific uh, wife or husband term. So um, it takes time. It takes us first to be aware. But I think um, it's such an easy change. And I think it makes a huge difference. So it really made me think about uh, kind of the first words on the moon. The one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Yeah, there we go. We should have said humanity or something. You know, uh, we have history now to to reflect on uh, how words matter in that arena. But yeah, definitely. I think um, you know, and things words change over time. I mean, we English is a living language, and so we need to adjust. So in terms of leadership addressing this, then um, we kind of touched on being more not only inclusive, but giving more people opportunity to work in the workspace. Uh, what advice would you have for uh, getting like women in like some getting them in positions of like leadership and helping change this language? What could that kind of look like? Yeah, so uh, one of the things uh, our team is doing uh, is to look at, you know, what, what are those things specifically? And so um, a couple of the areas we've identified are um, in retention practices. So 
you know, where, when do li- women leave a STEM job? Why do they leave? Um, what can we do to um, make them feel included? And so some of the literature is really promoting a sponsorship model, which is uh, like mentorship, but it's almost more intense, more intentional. Um, so that's uh, one of our suggestions. We've also seen um, not just in the literature, but in our data as well, um, that people, both women and men, uh, leave jobs around a two-year mark. And so um, that gives us a good target um, to know where we really need to focus our efforts in those first two years. The other thing that the literature has shown is that uh, women specifically um, don't get promoted um, because they they fail at sort of that first rung up, the first opportunity for promotion. Um, they don't get it for whatever reason. And so again, um, that's, you know, early in a career, early uh, after you've been hired. And so looking at creative ways to um, figure out how we promote, um, we, we might want to examine our uh, hiring and promotion practices. You know, are they transparent enough? Uh, are they unbiased? You know, what are some best practices in other sectors um, that we can adopt uh, in AFRL to make sure that we're we're doing things better. And that's a term I'd heard before, but wasn't quite familiar with. So with all this, uh, like actually helping with promotions and really helping this career path, it sounds like the sponsorship model could be a, a huge boon to that. So how is that more intensive than normal mentorship? So one of the key parts of sponsorship is to actually promote someone. So um, I may mentor Michelle and say, you know, here are some great opportunities that are available to you as a government civilian. And, you know, if you have any questions, let me know. That would be more of mentorship. Or the sponsorship would mean I would know Michelle's skills very well and what she's good at. And I would be um, actively promoting her for positions. So if I knew one of my colleagues had a position that Michelle would be perfect for, then I could um, actively uh, promote um, her for that type of work. And so it's just a little bit more, um, in depth, I guess, and a lot more intentional it does require uh, more time, uh, certainly on the part of the sponsorship on uh, the part of the sponsor. But I think, um, we have a really great culture of that in AFRL. And I think, um, people are probably willing to do that in my experience. So it kind of sounds like you have this advocate you know, more than just like passive, they're, they're active and kind of, kind of the same way you would advocate for yourself, but they may have a different network of connections or just experience to understand that how you could grow into a job based on, you know, skill sets that you already have that you might not be able to see yourself. Definitely. And I kind of alluded to this before, where sometimes our own worst enemy, we're, we're not, um, this is true for men and women. Um, you know, we're not always good at tuning our own horns and, and knowing what we're good at. And so to have somebody there who can sort of see you through a different lens um, to help you see those and promote those uh, characteristics, I think is really cool. Yeah, you mentioned like tooting your own horn because I either see it like in the science community since, you know, I'm, I'm helping communicate for them. You either see the people that are just really excel and I mean, it could be ego or they, they just get the value of communication. And then you get the other people that are so focused on doing a phenomenal job that they forget about how important it is to toot their own horn, to talk about the science, talk about what the organization is doing so that they can get recognized and grow and that 
science can continue. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, you've heard others in the sciences talk about this before of how important it is to communicate. You you may have the best idea in the world, but if you're not able to communicate your science, um, you're not going to get any funding for it and you're probably not going to move it forward very well. And so um, I think that is true for both our science and for us personally, uh, in a sense. And, you know, I think a lot of us are really grateful for folks like you and Ken and your team that really help us uh, package our science in a way that communicates it better. And in your career, then, have you seen that you have more mentors or more sponsors or like, how's that shaken out for you? Um, I think a little bit of both. Um, Certainly the sponsorship concept is fairly new, I think in the literature, at least it's new to me. Um, And I've had, you know, some really great mentors who have pushed me personally, who do help me see um, those qualities that I have um, and help me find ways to promote them for myself. Um, But certainly uh, I've had plenty who have uh, advocated on my behalf And uh, probably in some ways that I don't even know that they've done that because I've had great people in my life. I've had great mentors at AFRL who are willing to do that in general. As I was kind of saying before, that's sort of part of our culture. And I think it's uh, a natural extension of the mentorship work that we already do. And you're about to go into a new role at AFRL. What will you be doing in that role? Will you be trying to, you know, bring some of these ideas of, uh, sponsorship into your into that platform, or is it does it go outside of outside of just your immediate team you lead? Yeah, I mean, you know, mentorship is is we think of it as a pretty uh, specific connotation. You know, that there's this wise scientist who tells you everything they know and you know what to do. And you know, I I take a more open approach to what mentorship means and how we mentor one another. So certainly in my new role with a new team, I'm excited to uh, provide mentorship for any folks uh, that need or want it on that group. But at the same time, you know, I hope they're not relying just on me (laughs) for their mentorship. I mean, there are so many uh, great folks out there that they can connect with. So um, I have a lot of chemists on my new team. I'm not very good at chemistry, frankly. And, you know, I'm not going to be able to mentor them in that way. But um, I do have other skills that I can mentor them on. A lot of folks in my new group are relatively new government civilians, which, you know, I've been uh, doing this for 10 years. So that's something that I can help them with. So I think that's the really the key is uh, finding mentors that can help you with those specific areas uh, where you need a hand or need to learn and grow. And that's great too, because uh, something you touched on there, I think is super important is that with teams together, whether you're trying to mentor each other on purpose or not, there's so much you learn just by working alongside each other. And that collaboration can really give you a a lot of knowledge that makes you just dangerous enough, or at least a better understanding like for communicators, how to get their message across saying, hey, uh, I I mean, I know a lot about chemistry, but I do get what this means now and kind of share that with other colleagues, which is brilliant. Definitely. And I think um, one of the key things that we're really embracing now is uh, that cross-team, cross-disciplinary approach. You know, I think in the past, we kind of worked in our fields pretty closely, and we're realizing uh, now, or maybe I'm just realizing it now, how important it is to work with folks from other disciplines because they have uh, different perspectives. 
um, that maybe you hadn't thought of and different ways of approaching a problem um, that can really take your science to a new level. So speaking of taking science to a new level, um, a question we love asking all of our uh, podcast guests is uh, seeing what uh, either a certain researcher, a certain piece of technology, or something that helped inspire you uh, from Air Force or even just history in general to kind of uh, what brought you to this point. So I talked a little bit about the DOD Respiratory Disease Surveillance System, and I know that's not a piece of technology, but I'm really proud of that program. It's run out of AFRL. It's very robust. Um, and was mentioned on that flu podcast that it contributes directly to the creation of the flu vaccine every year. So I think it's pretty cool that we have this direct link to not only keeping our warfighters healthy, but also to um, help protect all Americans from illness. And I, I think that's pretty awesome. Absolutely. I know after we recorded that podcast, Kenneth literally ran out to like pharmacy and he got his flu shot. So it, it, it really influenced him. It worked. <laughs> it really works. Uh, that was the year I was like, I'll just wait a little bit for my flu shot. And after that, I'm like, there's no waiting. <laughs> I need to get out there. I need to get it now. Um, it's your so flu it's shot. <laughs> yes, everyone, shout out. Get your flu shot every year. Super important. Uh, but thank you for joining us. And that was a uh, very inspirational, uh, very good messaging, especially around um, learning about pandemics, what's happening now, learning a lot about your history. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to let the audience know? Uh, important shout outs like get a flu shot um, that we should uh, kind of end on a good note here with. I mean, I, I think everyone's probably heard this a lot, but, you know, we we're in the middle of a pandemic. So, you know, stay at home, do physical distancing and, you know, wash your hands. Uh, that's those are the keys. Uh, certainly, uh, mask wearing is important as we uh, can't social distance uh, when we're in situations where we can't. But um, I just think it's so important that we uh, follow those guidelines to help protect uh, ourselves and our community. Great advice. Thanks for joining us, Jen. Thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun. Make sure to follow us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube at AF Research Lab. And remember, stay curious. Logging off.